It's 1907 at a beach near Boston. Beachgoers dot the sand and swimmers bob up and down in the surf. As a young woman walks toward the water, cries of both admiration and horror emanate from the day's sunbathers. Looking up from sand to sky, the men and women on the beach that day saw the bare feet, ankles, legs, and arms of Annette Kellerman, the best female swimmer in the world. Her scandalous one-piece swimsuit left less to the imagination than Victorian underwear did. The police quickly arrived on the scene and arrested her for indecent exposure. And this was how Annette Kellerman got the opportunity to defend a woman's right to swim. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. So let's take a second to get our bearings here. Swimming in pools, at the beach, or in a lake are obviously popular pastimes, but it certainly hasn't always been this way. Swimming wasn't a widely practiced activity in Europe and much of the English-speaking world until about the mid-19th century. Historical records suggest that the ancient Egyptians might have swum as a leisure activity, and other ancient civilizations who lived by the sea may also have swum for various purposes. But as time went on, public support for swimming diminished. I'm sure there are a lot of contributing factors to this, but some reasons could have come as a result of civilizations moving more inland and also could have been due to the expansion of Christianity. Pagans worshipped nature-focused gods, and a campaign to paint the ocean and other bodies of water as negative places instead of the homes of sea gods could have also had an effect. So, leading up to the 1800s, knowing how to swim, either for leisure or necessity, was not common. However, as the 19th century got underway, swimming slowly began to gain popularity. In a general sense, people started to get their toes wet, both figuratively and literally, in public baths. Bathing was a widely prescribed activity to alleviate ailments, and this wasn't necessarily swimming, but it was getting people in the water. But around the mid-1800s, competitive swimming started to take off. Crowds gathered to watch the novelty of capable swimmers gliding through the water. In the beginning, it was male swimmers who led the way. Women often just weren't allowed. For example, female swimmers wouldn't be allowed to compete in the Olympics until 1912. Whether women were actually swimming or just bathing, at least they were getting into the water. But they were weighed down by so many social mores that it wasn't an option to just strip down and glide through the water like the guys. First of all, swimming and bathing tended to be segregated. Men could swim in certain areas and women could bathe in others. The Victorian obsession with modesty and purity encouraged women to go to the beach fully clothed. Because heaven forbid someone get a load of your fully covered ankle. So many women went to the beach and hopped into a bathing machine. Bathing machines were a way to further enforce separation of the sexes. Bathers, typically women, would step into the machine, which was really just a totally enclosed wooden carriage with a door. The carriage would then be wheeled either by horses or a fairly strong person into the water. The bathers would change into their swimming costumes inside the bathing machine and step down into the water once they were ready. 
Now, not every female swimmer used a bathing machine to get into the water, but beaches across Europe, Britain, and the United States were absolutely covered with them during the Victorian era. The bathing machine would block them from any potential onlookers on the shore. So by avoiding being seen in their bathing costumes on the beach and having the added benefit of the bathing machine shielding them from view of any potential onlookers once they were in the water, a woman's modesty was never threatened. So the question we now have to ask ourselves is, what exactly were these bathing machines covering up? And the simple, boring, and yet horrifying answer is dresses. The female swimming costume of the Victorian era consisted of tights topped by pantaloons topped by a knee-length wool dress. So just imagine trying not to get tangled in your dress while struggling to stay afloat while being weighed down by layers of sopping wet wool. Not easy. We've got to take our hats off to these ladies. So taking all of this into account, I think Victorian women weren't so much swimming as they were just trying to stay alive. Meanwhile, the dudes are swimming in their chic, body-hugging, one-piece suits akin to a tank top and shorts. As we discussed at length in the Kitty Knox bicycle episode, women of this period were imprisoned by their clothing, corsets, long, heavy skirts, and now heavy death traps as swimsuits. That is, until Annette Kellerman completely changed the ballgame. Now, to understand the modern-day swimsuit is to understand Annette Kellerman. Annette was a force to be reckoned with. She burst onto the swimming scene as a young woman, competed successfully against some of the best male swimmers in the world, fearlessly jumped into the English Channel, empowered women to move freely, and revolutionized the female swimsuit. And she did all of this by her mid-twenties. So let's start at the beginning. Annette was born in 1886 in a suburb of Sydney, Australia. When she was very young and tried to stand, her legs couldn't support her weight. She was subsequently diagnosed with rickets, which is a weakening or softening of the bones that's often due to certain vitamin deficiencies. So from early on, she had to wear heavy iron braces on her legs. The braces were uncomfortable, and Annette would sneak them off at any chance she could get, until at the age of seven, she could finally take them off for good. But years of inactivity imposed by the braces left Annette weak. At that time, doctors commonly prescribed fairly heinous treatments for someone with Annette's condition, like operations and the use of strengthening and stretching devices. But luckily, Annette's doctor prescribed swimming to build her strength. So while women were pretty much prohibited from recreational swimming, either by rule or by clothing in much of the world at that time, Australia was actually way ahead of the game. There were public beaches and baths all over Sydney that were used by both men and women. Swimming was an enjoyable recreation in Australia instead of the inconvenient, sexually segregated activity it was in most of the English-speaking world. At first, Annette absolutely hated it. But once she got the hang of things, swimming was all she wanted to do. And soon, she was swimming stronger and faster than all the girls and boys. Her metamorphosis from weak to strong appears to have been a defining concept in Annette's life. Her newfound ability to transform her body became a sort of life force that she would later share with millions. Suddenly, not only was she strong, but she was stronger and faster than everyone else around her. 
Now, Justa pointed out, Annette was already wearing a men's swimsuit early on, which essentially consisted of a one-piece tank top and shorts, but it wasn't really a big deal. It was simply a practical solution to her need to swim gracefully and efficiently. Apart from racing, she began diving off of platforms from 30 to 40 to 90 feet high. This was something that no girl, at least on record, had ever done before. As she got older and better, crowds gathered to watch her scantily clad, graceful dives. Annette had actually started learning ballet as a child, and she dreamed of performing on stage one day. She applied all the grace and technique she learned in ballet to her dives, and this elegant execution would one day make her famous. But at the age of 14, Annette was already making a name for herself. She was beating all the girls and was beating many of the men in races. At age 15, Annette established a new world record for swimming a mile. And within a couple of years, she was setting the record for the longest swim ever completed by a woman, 10 miles. But as Annette's accomplishments were building, the Kellermans were hit hard by an economic depression of the 1890s. Annette's parents were cultured, artistic people who ran a conservatory out of their home and held infamous soirees for artists, dancers, and performers. But by 1903, their livelihood was lost, and suddenly, Annette's swimming became a way to help the family out financially. So at the age of 17, Annette began performing at the Melbourne Aquarium and at a local theater doing stunts, dives, and performing as a mermaid character she'd invented. She'd learned to hold her breath for long periods of time and used her ballet skills yet again to impress as she moved gracefully underwater. Again, none of this was hurt by the fact that Annette performed in a form-fitting, leg-revealing swimsuit. It wasn't completely uncommon for Australian women to wear the practical swimsuits that men wore, but it wasn't common for them to perform in them. But Annette was proud of her body, strength, and stamina, and she was eager to show an audience what she and other women could do. It was through these performances that Annette and her father saw the potential for a woman in the water. But as much opportunity as Annette had found at home, she and her father could see that going abroad, where a swimming woman was a great novelty, would bring them much more significant income. So in 1904, Annette and her father boarded a ship bound for England. Now, Annette would make a name for herself in England, and her swimsuit would make its mark on English society. But first, she had to get noticed. Annette and her father arrived in England with barely any money at all. They were so short on cash that they didn't even have money to buy a stamp to mail a letter back home to let her family know that they'd arrived in England safely. They could only afford to stay in this dingy, low-ceilinged room with no windows. But necessity is the mother of invention, so Annette got to work. They decided to gain momentum by getting some publicity. So Annette decided to swim a 26-mile section of the River Thames, which was a lovely journey into waters filled with oil, sewage, and waste. It also wasn't unheard of to spot a corpse or two off the coast from time to time. All in all, this was a desperate ploy, but a ploy that worked. Annette jumped into the water on a June morning, and passersby spread the word about a woman swimming in the river. Curious onlookers gathered on the banks along the river to catch a glimpse as she passed. And by the time she finished her swim, newspaper men were also watching from the shore. But when Annette completed her swim and emerged from the water, she was covered with grease from head to toe. 
But the next day, she was front page news. So as dirty and disgusting as the experience may have been, it worked. And it won her an offer from a local newspaper that pitched her a publicity deal. If she agreed to swim 45 miles per week for eight weeks straight, they would cover her every step of the way. Now, this proposal was exhausting, but Annette accepted. Every day that Annette swam, crowds gathered to catch a glimpse of the woman the newspaper called the Australian Mermaid. Each week was grueling, but Annette's face was plastered all over the newspapers every day, and that publicity was pure gold. By the end of the eight weeks, doors flew open for Annette. Now, to take a second to talk about Annette's swimsuit once more, so far, the form-fitting suit hadn't garnered negative press attention. In fact, as it had been and would always be, I would imagine that the swimsuit was a significant part of the spectacle and interest. But though it wasn't being condemned, it's not like local women were rushing to the store looking for one just like it. However, Annette did run into a bit of a snag when she was asked to perform at a bath club for a duke and duchess. The problem was that the organizer somehow didn't realize until the day of the performance that Annette had planned to wear a swimsuit that showed her bare legs. They let Annette know that this just wasn't going to be okay. Apparently, the duke and duchess would have clutched their pearls too hard. And so comes a pivotal moment in the evolution of the swimsuit. Annette's first thought was to just put on a pair of stockings to cover her legs, but she found that there was a gap between the top of her stockings and the bottom of her shorts, showing a strip of flesh in between. This was still going to elicit some pearl clutching, so she went out and bought the longest pair of stockings she could find and sewed them to her swimsuit. This essentially created a full-body, body-hugging unitard. Her legs were covered, but it showed her curves, muscles, and athleticism. This thrown-together design would become the first female swimsuit that would later become widely accepted. After a host of diving performances, Annette returned to her roots in competitive swimming. She made a name for herself in France where she participated in a race down the Seine, swimming against all male competitors. After being misled by officials about how much longer she had to go, she pushed too hard, too far from the end, and exhausted herself. Frustrated, she tied for third, but she was loved by spectators and gained a fan base in France. Now, before going back to the diving and performing that would make her truly famous, Annette wanted to flex that competitive muscle one more time and turned her sights to the cold, tumultuous, holy grail of swimming, the English Channel. So today, the English Channel is still one of the ultimate challenges for elite swimmers, but by Annette's attempt in 1905, only one swimmer had ever made it across the 22-mile channel successfully. Since that initial crossing, there had been dozens of unsuccessful attempts to make it to the other shore. In Annette's race in 1905, there were five swimmers who jumped into the cold water that day, and Annette was the only woman to enter, making her the first woman to attempt the crossing. So let's take a second to talk about what endurance swimming can mean on a practical level. First of all, the first successful attempt across the channel took over 20 hours. These types of swims typically forbid the swimmer from being supported physically in any way, meaning that if they grab onto a boat or an oar for even a momentary break, they're disqualified from the race. And to help us understand what kind of environment these swimmers were jumping into, let's talk about temperature. The water was cold, about 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit on average. Your body would have to work really hard to keep your body temperature at a safe level, even with the exertion of swimming. 
Next, the water was constantly choppy. Long-distance swimmers inevitably ingest water, and as we all know, ingesting salt water is not fun for anyone. The salt dehydrates and upsets the stomach. Lastly, the water was filled with seaweed, jellyfish, and sharks. So the last thing anyone needs who is trying to stay warm and to avoid drinking the water they're immersed in is to be worried that Jaws is stalking them from below. Nope. Oh, but wait, there's more. So let's get a little personal here. One of the menaces of endurance sports is chafing. Repetitive movements over miles and miles and hours and hours will inevitably produce areas of the body that fall victim to rubbing and tight seams. Long-distance swimmers often finish races with deep gashes where their swimsuits cut into their skin over the course of hours upon hours and thousands upon thousands of strokes. It's its own form of torture, really. So while the men got to swim naked, covered in seal fat for warmth to avoid this horrific chafing, Annette had to wear her trusty swimsuit, which chafed horribly under her arms. Again, the race forbade any type of assistance, so while boats would row near the swimmers, the swimmers couldn't grab onto or even touch the edge of the boat or even an oar, or risk being disqualified. In the end, Annette would attempt to cross the channel three times. On the first attempt, rough seas prevented anyone from crossing successfully. On her last attempt, Annette became seasick, and while she could even see the French coastline toward the end, she couldn't continue. However, she made it three-fourths of the way and set a woman's record of ten and a half hours in the water, which she held for more than 20 years. Completing the crossing, of course, would have been nice, but the impact she made just by trying, being the only woman in the water and enduring for hours despite the temperatures and being sloshed around in the waves, made a lasting statement. Women can swim right along with men, and they're tougher than they're given credit for. Annette finished off her time in England, performing at swimming galas and even for the Queen. But an unfortunate and lasting trend that Annette began in England was a series of accidents and close shaves that would pepper her career. The central focus of many of her performances in England was her diving demonstrations. Diving was a very novel act, and because diving was not at all a common activity in England at that time, the diving boards that Annette dove from were sometimes thrown together and inadequate. Early on in her time in England, Annette's father would check the pools and diving boards prior to performances to make sure they were safe. But as time went on, Frederick's health began to deteriorate, and he couldn't accompany Annette to her performances. So at one performance, Annette dove off of the board headfirst into a pool that no one told her was shallow. She smashed her face into the tile floor and then floated to the surface. Blood was streaming down her face, and she lost consciousness. Annette was taken to the hospital and given six stitches. But this episode was prolonged because, against medical advice, Annette went back to work before the gash was fully healed. But to be fair, she couldn't afford not to work. She was supporting both her father and her family back in Australia. The problem was that the pools she was swimming in were unsanitary, and the cut became horribly infected and had to be drained. The infection got so bad that she almost died. Gratefully, she came back from the infection, but she was left with a significant scar. From that point on, she always performed with bangs and a scarf covering her forehead. By 1907, Annette got an enormous break. She received a telegram from the White City Amusement Park in Chicago asking that she come and perform there. 
Now, performing at amusement parks certainly wasn't the most glamorous career move that Annette could have made, but it was the logical next step, and it did get her foot in the door of American fame. She accepted and began winning over the crowds instantly. Soon, she was traveling around the country with her show. When Annette traveled to Boston to perform at another amusement park there, she went to the beach right away. And this is where we first found Annette, causing a scene at Revere Beach in her form-fitting, skin-bearing swimsuit. But there is more than one version of what happened next. In the most commonly told version, Annette was arrested for indecent exposure and brought before a judge. She reportedly made an impressive case for the fact that the widely used dresses women wore as swimming costumes actually inhibited their movement. After hearing her arguments, the judge found her ideas reasonable and simply asked that she cover up while on the beach until she got into the water. However, in the second version of events, Annette showed up on the beach in her swimsuit and turned a lot of heads. And that was it. Now, Annette would have spent enough time in the United States at this point to know that her swimsuit was a surprise to the general public, but accepted in the context of her shows. But whether she knew that wearing the swimsuit on a public beach among everyday swimmers would cause an outrage is unknown. She must, however, have known that her swimsuit would draw interest. And let's be fair, at that stage, she was experienced at getting publicity, which would have been helpful for her newly starting show. After the incident, she was front-page news. Although newspapers reported that Annette was arrested on Revere Beach that day, there isn't actual evidence of her arrest. Either way, she drew a lot of attention, and in the end, it doesn't actually matter whether she was arrested or not, because Annette's fame and the public's reaction to it changed the course of history. Suddenly, there was a national conversation about a woman's right to swim. And Annette took advantage of her now nationally known status to launch a swimwear line. She made replicas of her form-fitting, light, practical swimsuit available to the masses, and women started wearing them. Annette's swimsuit alone would lead her to unbelievable fame and fortune. But the swimsuit itself was just a physical representation of Annette's embodiment of the new vision of what women could be. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. One of my favorite pieces of research about Annette Kellerman was a biography called The Original Million Dollar Mermaid by Emily Gibson and Barbara Firth. This book follows Annette's life in detail from beginning to end. And what makes this book both cool and unique is that Barbara Firth actually knew Annette Kellerman. She met Annette at the end of her life and spent five days at her home on the Gold Coast of Australia, going through Annette's collections of memorabilia from her extraordinary career. More than any other source that I studied, I felt like this book gave me a glimpse into Annette's inner life and motivations. So if you're looking for a detailed account of Annette's incredible life, I highly recommend The Original Million Dollar Mermaid. Annette's swimsuit incident was the seed of a seismic shift in the way that women experienced the water. 
Tune into the next episode in this series to hear about the way that Annette wielded her powerful career as a swimmer, vaudeville performer, lecturer, and film actress to liberate and spark women across the globe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated. 